Hello and welcome to Movement Disorder Podcast. I'm Danish Bahati. This week's podcast will be an interview with movement disorder experts on their approach to ataxic patients for diagnosis and management. I will be sharing my insights and approaches and we will review various other approaches. Diagnosing a patient's etiology of ataxia is a tough job and we will be picking some of the best brains to do it. The guests have not prepared and I have caught them by surprise. Let's see if they can think on their feet. You will find interesting range of approaches and differences in practice, which is the art of movement disorders. And like always, we will look into personal side of our guests. Let's find out from Dr. Torres how he will approach ataxic patients. Dr. Torres is the Program Director for Movement Disorders Fellowship and Director of Movement Disorders Center at University of Nebraska Medical Center, or UNMC. False and balance problems are uh, very common and uh, a very important uh, healthcare problem in the world. And one of the main reasons for injuries and death uh, in the elderly in the United States. So it is a very important, uh, it is a very important health problem. I think that the, the, the first thing that comes to mind when I'm seeing a patient with false is can I find something fixable mm-hmm. in here? What is, you know, what would be the possible treatable etiologies that could be contributing to this patient's falling? And uh, one of the most common treatable conditions uh, that you need to rule out is a structural myelopathy. I think that is under-recognized uh, and uh, a very uh, common uh, disorder and common problem. I see. What would be the the possible causes behind that? The most common are uh, these herniations and uh, ligamentum flabum uh, buckling uh, with, you know, loss of uh, uh, vertebral bodies, heights, and then uh, producing compression of the cord. But there are many other options. Um, I have had patients with uh, epidural hematomas, Mm with uh, uh, epidural uh, and intradural tumors. Um, And then, of course, you have the non-structural myelopathies that could be also inducing problems like metabolic uh, multiple sclerosis and and, uh, transverse myelitis and the like. There are other uh, metabolic etiologies that are important to uh, think about, vitamin deficiencies, uh, rheumatological disorders, infections, are, you know, the first things that come to mind. So in rheumatological disorders, you can have uh, autoimmune uh, uh, transverse uh, myelitis and on vitamin deficiencies, uh, vitamin B12 deficiency, vitamin E deficiency, zinc, uh, copper, um, thiamine deficiency, like in Wernicke's uh, encephalopathy, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is, is now common even in young patients, uh, pregnant patients, uh, patients that don't drink, uh, including uh, patients that have undergone uh, gastric bypass surgeries uh, and other uh, causes of malnourishment could induce uh, a vitamin deficiency that would not be clear from the outside and then could present as a neurological syndrome. So I, I just tried to focus initially on things that are fixable or curable and uh, you know if I don't find anything then uh, that makes me move on to you know to the next step which is just trying to deal with the ataxia itself. 
Thank you, Diego. That was very useful. We have a tradition on our show where we ask our speakers for an interesting story from their life. Knowing Diego for a while now, I know many interesting stories from him. I think I'm going to ask him today to tell us about the story of the Girl Scout cookies. The Girl Scout cookies story. Wow, that's a... So when I was in Venezuela uh, uh, as a rural physician, uh, we had a, a very bad flutings. There, there was a, a storm that lasted for... A tropical storm mm. that, that lasted for many days. And... Um, you know, water was coming from all over. So was there like a river or, or a canal nearby? There, there were multiple rivers where I was working. I, I was in the middle of, the, of, uh, of a jungle. Mm. And uh, uh, we had a, um, um, a dam that was close by. And this, you know, the water was basically getting from everywhere uh -huh. and over overfilling this dam mm -hmm. and it you know the government uh, knew that at some point the dam was gonna basically break mm -hmm. and it did and then we were basically surrounded by water oh, wow. and uh, we were working in the um, you know the small clinic and the church were, were basically some of the highest areas of the town uh-huh And after a few days of working and uh, eating basically uh, uh, sardines, uh, you know, <laughs> came in cans and, uh, and the like, uh, we saw a helicopter uh, and uh, we were excited because it could be medical supplies. Yeah. And when this helicopter dropped, it just dropped a box and left. And it was a huge box. And you were the only doctor in town. Well, it was me and my For wife. Miles. Yeah, okay. me and my wife. So we opened the box, and what did we find? We found a whole lot of Girl Scout cookies there. And, of <laughs> course, the whole town was dying uh, of uh, hunger. Uh, and uh, I can assure you they never uh, tasted more delicious yeah. than, than, that, than that particular day. <laughs> and the Girl Scout cookies still sound, uh, still uh, taste delicious after all these years? Uh, after all these years, yeah. <laughs> uh, the memories of receiving those uh, cookies, uh, you know, are very sweet. <laughs> Next, I went to Dr. John Bertoni, the professor of neurology and director of Parkinson's disease clinic at UNMC. I have learned to greatly appreciate the wisdom of Dr. Bertoni and his insight into patients' disabilities with these chronic movement disorders. Let's see what Dr. Bertoni has to say about his approach to patients with ataxia. Well, that's a great question and it's complicated, but I'll try to make it simple. We fall for many reasons. In order to remain standing, it takes us a year to learn how to stand and walk. And it's very complicated. We require sensation. The dorsal column pathway is how we stand up. Without that, we close our eyes and we fall. We have an inner ear that if that is disturbed, we are going to fall even with our eyes open and our posterior columns working. If we have unconsciousness spells, we need to sort out, is this related to hypotension? Is it autonomic? Is it a seizure? Is it something else? 
So I think we go through a differential diagnosis. The other thing that allows us to walk and stand and not fall is our motor system, which also requires our sensory system. So it is almost all of neurology. If we know how to handle people who have imbalance and falls, we can almost look at the whole nervous system in one go. So the differential sometimes is what's the most common thing, what's the most treatable thing, or what's the thing I've got to think of first. That's a big broad overview, but it is a very complex thing. You asked me a pretty hard question there to start with, <laughs> but it's an enormously important thing. If you start falling, you're prone to fractures, and if you can't move, then somebody has to move you. Very wise words indeed. I still learn a lot from Dr. Bertsoni. Next, we're going to talk to Dr. Amy Hellman, an assistant professor of neurology at UNMC and director of Huntington's Disease Clinic, about her approach to patients with ataxia. Amy? Well, I start with confirming that I believe it's a cerebellar ataxia and that it's not other things that are affecting somebody's balance. Um, once I've decided that, of course, there's the family history. If somebody has a known family history of a specific genetically inherited ataxia that's been genetically confirmed, obviously I just test for that, but I don't think that's ever actually happened. So if there, even if there's a family history, but it hasn't been diagnosed yet, I start with ruling out sporadic causes of ataxia, mm -hmm. um, which is um, largely labs do imaging, preferably brain, brain MRI. Um, once I've ruled those out, if possible, then I go to genetic testing. Because there's so much variability um, in the genetic ataxias, we'll throw a large net, a broad net, and, uh -huh. and a screen for as many of them as, as I possibly can. Almost impossible to decide, and going you know, one gene at a time takes a lot of time and can, in the end, be more costly. If patients don't have the resources to pay for genetic testing, then I just continue to follow over time, treat in um, any way that I can, and keep monitoring for additional symptoms which might help to clarify the diagnosis. Perfect. My approach to ataxia is very similar to the other speakers that you've heard. Not surprisingly because I've been trained by most of them. I believe it's important to look into patient's disability and suffering from the ataxia and at the same time have a practical, pragmatic approach in looking for the most common and easily treatable conditions first. I would look for all the same conditions that have been reported by Dr. Torres and look for clues for any of the less common or rare conditions. Imaging is a must in my mind, and some many basic blood tests can be very useful. At the same time, it's important to open up the idea of management with patients Something as simple as physical therapy and occupational therapy may be enough in the beginning, or you may have to be bold and try some of the non-FDA-approved medications to look for improvement in ataxia. As always, I hope you're thrilled as I am about today's episode. Your feedbacks and suggestions are highly appreciated, so write to us at unmc.mdpodcast at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at danishbahati underscore md or at D-A-N-I-S-H-B-H-A-T-T-I underscore M-D. Hope to see you next time. Ciao, ciao.